Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2021 Acton Lecture Series featuring Dr. Carl Truman on his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In this timely work, he explores the development of the sexual revolution as a symptom rather than the cause of the human search for identity. Truman surveys the past, brings clarity to the present, and gives guidance for the future as Christians navigate the culture in humanity's ever-changing quest for identity. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hello, and welcome to our May installment of our monthly Acton Lecture Series. We're delighted today to have Dr. Carl Truman on the topic of the rise and triumph of the modern self, the theme of his latest book. Dr. Truman earned his master's in classics from the University of Cambridge and his PhD in church history from the University of Aberdeen and is currently professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. After the lecture, we will have about 25 minutes for live Q&A. So please, during the lecture, send in your questions to digital at acton.org or in the Facebook live stream. So please enjoy with us the lecture, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Hello, my name's Carl Truman. Today I want to lecture on the themes of my latest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. What I want to do in this lecture, though, is not rehash the arguments of that book so much as present some further ideas, take the argument a little bit further in order to enable us to have a better understanding or a better handle on the culture in which we find ourselves. In essence, what my book does is argue that over the last three, four, five hundred years, we have slowly but surely in the West come to prioritise inner feelings as being central and essential to who we are as people, that those inner feelings have been dramatically sexualized. And inevitably, that sexualization of inner feelings has led to the politicization of sex. Uh, and that's the world in which we find ourselves, the world in which the LGBTQ movement, for example, has tremendous power, authority, plausibility within our wider culture. What I want to look at today, though, is some of the general concepts that provide a framework for better understanding the particular issues that we face, things that in some ways underlay the argument of my book. First thing I want to look at is the nature of personhood. Second, I want to look at the politics of recognition. And third, I want to look at the power of imagined communities. Reflecting upon these three, I think, will help us to understand the distinctive nature of the culture in which we now find ourselves. For our culture is one marked by what I would call plastic people who believe they can make and remake themselves at will, and by a liquid world in which, to borrow a phrase from Karl Marx, all that is solid seems continually to melt into air. 
The coincidence of these two things, plastic people and a liquid world, is central to the issues we now face in our culture, from identity politics and LGBTQ plus rights to the growing impatience in some quarters with traditional freedoms, such as those of speech and religion. But one cannot look at these things specifically before one clarifies the true terms of discussion. And that's what I want to do in this short lecture. First then, what is a person? When we reflect upon personal identity, it quickly becomes clear that we are more than that of which we are made. What exactly do I mean by this? Well, there is a sense in which I could be defined in terms of the various chemical compounds which make up my body. Water, salt, fats, etc. That might not, of course, be sufficient to define me as this particular individual, but this could easily be rectified with attention to my genetic code. Were I to commit a crime, for example, and leave some droplets of blood or a few skin cells at the scene, a forensic scientist would be able to prove that I, and not some other character, was present when the burglary was committed. And yet, if I'm asked who I am, it is very unlikely that I'm going to respond by telling the inquirer my genetic code. It is true that the chemicals that constitute my body and the genetic code that provides my unique biological nature are what I am. But they are not who I am. To be a person is to be something more. It is to be someone with a particular history. To ask who I am is not to demand to know what makes me biologically distinct from other human beings, but to ask about my life, about the people, the places, the actions and the events that have shaped my sense of identity. We can feel a sense of this by asking ourselves what it would be like to have been born in a different time and different place and to different parents. What if I had been born in France in 1770 to a family of French nobles rather than in England in the 1960s to a family of the lower middle class? The question makes my head spin because it is really impossible to answer. Even if that version of me had the same genetic code, he would not be me in any meaningful sense of the word. I am, in an important sense, constituted by the social relationships which I have with other people and the ways in which they have shaped my experience of the world. We can press this further. We all like to assume that our identity is a monologue. After all, we feel intuitively free. Our lives are full of decisions that we have made. Some are trivial. What to eat for breakfast, for example. Some are momentous. Where we study. What career we pursue. Whom we marry. But they are all decisions made by us with a deep, intuitive sense of freedom. Yes, there are some things we have no power over. The identity of our parents would be an obvious instance of such. But even with our family, we have a significant degree of freedom over how we relate to our siblings and to our parents, to our aunts, our uncles, to our cousins, as we grow up. We can choose to remain close to our parents and siblings, or we can repudiate them entirely. Is my identity therefore not in large part a matter of my own free choice? In a sense, yes it is. Human beings are intentional creatures. We shape our destinies, unlike other creatures. Beavers build dams because they are instinctively disposed to do so. 
cats catch mice because that is what cats do. Woodpeckers peck at the bark of trees because that is what a woodpecker is designed for. But neither beavers nor cats nor woodpeckers reflect upon these actions, nor do they decide to do them in the sense that I might decide to paint a picture, build a wall or go fishing. As a human being, I can and do act intentionally. I can conceive of the future and I can act relative to that future in a manner that chooses to pursue one course of action instead of another after a process of deliberation. Freedom and intentionality characterise my life. So is my identity not a matter of me deciding to be this kind of person and not that? In fact, of course, the situation is more complicated than this intuitive, monological understanding of the self implies. This is because human beings also act in dialogue with their surroundings. To put it very simply, we do not make these intentional decisions in a vacuum. Rather, we make them in the context of the societies in which we are placed. Societies whose framework provides the means by which our actions have meaning. To take a banal example, think of a typical teenager. There is no person more prone to emphasise independence and freedom than a teenager wanting to assert their emerging adulthood by breaking free of the constraints placed upon them by their parents. Often this manifests itself in choice of clothing. Fashion is frequently designed to be a contrast with that which preceded it and therefore to mark off the rising generation from previous ones. On occasion, it can be very specifically intended to represent a form of positive rebellion. The arrival of blue jeans in the 1950s and of miniskirts in the 1960s are two obvious examples. But every generation has its own sartorial idioms for expressing its freedom and its distinctiveness. Yet this choice of clothing while intended as a display of individuality and independence, often leads teenagers to adopt a remarkably conformist appearance. In short, teenagers frequently all look, dress and talk like each other. This highlights the fact that human beings do not simply wish to be free. We also wish to belong, to be part of a group where we are accepted and affirmed. We are social creatures, and we thrive best in situations where we are connected to others and have a sense of communal identity. The terms of belonging to any group or community, we might say its grammar, its syntax, its vocabulary, are not things that we as individuals invent, but they are constituted by the society in which we find ourselves, of which we desire to be a part, and by which we want to be recognised. The teenager who wants to express her freedom does so by wearing the uniform of the group to which she belongs to, or to which she wishes to belong. She may well be rebelling against the norms set by her parents, but she is conforming to a framework established by those with whom she wishes to identify. The same is true of society as a whole. We may be intuitively free and intuitively intentional in our actions, but we also wish to belong to a group or groups that make us feel valued. And that leads us to my second point here, the politics of recognition. The politics of recognition. 
What I mean by the term recognition here is not the common sense meaning of the term whereby I might look in the mirror and recognize my own face staring back at me, or I might pass a neighbor in the street and call out to them by name and greeting. Rather, I mean the kind of recognition that is given to us in the act of belonging to a community by having our identity as part of that community recognized. A trivial example will help to illustrate this. Many of us remember schoolyard events from our childhood when an informal game of some team sport would be organised during a lunch break. Typically, two individuals would be captains and would take turns to select individuals to play on their team. To be the first pick was usually accompanied with a feeling of pride and achievement because the captain was acknowledging that you were skillful at the game and important for a winning strategy. That is a form of recognition. Your value, your personhood is being affirmed in you being chosen to play on the team. In an alternative scenario, however, we can imagine being the child who's picked last, or worse still, is, is not picked at all. That experience is typically characterized by a feeling of dejection and failure. It always hurts to be the last pick. Using more technical vocabulary, we might say that it precipitates a feeling of alienation, of disjointedness, of depression, of the fact that all is not right with the world, that, that I somehow don't fit or am not valued. In this latter case, we can say that the child has not been recognised because his value has not been affirmed. This trivial example sets forth the kind of situation in which human beings find themselves in society, where the granting or withholding of recognition is key to a sense of community and belonging. Societies as a whole have frameworks for recognition. We might call this their ethical structure, the set of cultural standards and expectations to which individuals need to conform in order to be considered fully to belong to a particular society or community. Refusal to conform to these norms, or failure to conform to these norms, is likely to result in a refusal of full membership, a denial of full recognition to the one who is deviant by the relevant standards. Now, for example, take the idea of the nation-state. To belong to the nation-state, one must act in accordance with the principles dictated by the values of patriotism. Thus, between 1939 and 1945 in Britain, giving assistance to members of the German Wehrmacht was inconsistent with being a British patriot and liable to render one subject to prosecution as a traitor. The same kind of principles apply to a family. Many of us remember misbehaving in some fashion and hearing our parents utter words such as, no member of this family behaves in that way. Families assume certain standards of behaviour, and to contravene them is to contradict one's status and invite ostracism. The church practice of excommunication, or casting somebody out of the visible ecclesiastical community, witnessed to this as well. If you refuse to conform to the expected standards of behaviour of the church, you will face consequences. In each case, the traitor, the delinquent child, and the heretic are denied recognition because they have acted outside of the moral framework of the community. 
In sum, each society or community has its own rules of recognition that determine who belongs and who does not. We might also add that the refusal of recognition, as any last pick in a schoolyard game scenario knows, is a painful and demeaning experience. This is important for understanding why tolerance was never going to be enough for the LGBTQ plus community and why cake bakers and florists who refuse to serve gay weddings have so easily been turned into villains by the wider culture. They have refused recognition. They have refused to accept that people belong according to the terms that are increasingly dominant for setting the standards of belonging and recognition in the world in which we live today. I don't want to explore that in any more detail here. You may ask me about that in the question and answer session, if you like. Here I want to connect the issue of recognition to the fact that many of the standard ways of being recognised, principally nations, religious institutions and the family are now in a state of flux or collapse. And that brings me to my third point, the issue of imagined communities. Imagined communities. In an influential book, Imagined Communities, the political scientist and historian Benedict Anderson argued that the idea of the nation-state involved an imagined community. Nations, almost by definition, involve so vast an area of geographical space, such large populations, and so many individual communities, villages, towns, cities, etc., that it is impossible for everyone in the state to know everybody else. This means that for a nation to exist, for the idea of the nation to grip the imagination of its members... Its members must imagine that they hold things in common that give them a coherent identity as a body of people. The hairdresser in Cornwall must identify in some way with the docker in Tyneside for the concept of England to have any real authority. The trucker in Seattle must identify at some deep level with the restaurant owner in Florida if the idea of America is to make any sense. What binds them together, of course, is in part a strong national narrative, something that gives them a sense of history, a sense of belonging, a sense of pride, in short, a sense of identity. In Britain, there were patriotic songs that spoke to this. Land of hope and glory for the English, Scotland the brave for the Scots, and land of my fathers for the Welsh. The American national anthem and the calendar marking those dates in the nation's history that define its identity. Thanksgiving, July the 4th, Veterans Day, Martin Luther King Day, all served to press the power of the national narrative onto the population. These national narratives provided the basis for patriotism, the commitment to a national cause which motivated men to sign up for the army in the First and Second World Wars. Their identity was so wrapped up with the nation that a strike against their country was a strike against them. To risk death for the country was a comprehensible act because a threat to the nation was a threat to each and every one of them and their families. In short, even though few of them actually knew each other in their real daily lives, they still saw themselves as all belonging to a community whose cause they saw as greater than themselves. That, we might note, is true belonging, and it is rooted in the imagination. 
That does not mean that the sense of belonging is imaginary in the sense of not being true or not really existing, but it does mean that it is rooted in a way of thinking and not in the fact of personal acquaintance with every other member of the community. Now, this is where our current situation becomes rather complicated. What happens when the narratives that provide us with our traditional identities lose their authority and become highly contested? When the ways in which we belong start to fall apart? That is another way of describing the phenomenon we are experiencing now as nation, uh, religious institutions and families experience collapsing authority. If the perennial need to belong persists, where do human beings find that belonging in a world where the traditional forms for such belonging are no longer plausible? Or to use Anderson's terminology, where traditional communities can no longer be imagined as they once were. To answer this, it is first useful to note that technology plays a key role. If technology in the form of the pill helped to undermine traditional sexual codes, then in the form of the internet, it helps to weaken the traditional narratives of our imagined communities and offer others to replace them. Indeed, information technology now means that there is a multitude of competing narratives and consequently so many different ways of imagining communities. If the imagined community of the nation depended upon an agreed national story and means by which that national story could be promoted and maintained, then that assumed that there were coherent means of telling that story. In short, a unified community assumed limited information that allowed for a single dominant narrative to give coherence to the whole. Now, this is not to argue for the need for censorship of information, such as we now see in China. That, too, has a distorting impact on a people's sense of identity. It is simply to note that the explosion of information facilitated by technology is having a profound effect on how we in the West think of ourselves. For example... When I was a child in Britain, there were only three television channels. That meant that the national news was presented by a tiny handful of programmes. New movies had to be watched at the cinema because it was years before they would be licensed for the television. There were perhaps less than ten national newspapers, of which only about half offered serious news analysis. Knowledge of the rest of the world was mediated by newsprint, by photographs and by the occasional piece of video footage. Even America seemed a long way away. In short, the national narrative was strong because the dominant media voices were few, and while not all in total agreement, operating within reasonably narrow narrative boundaries. And the alternatives were weak and non-existent. Yes, the Morning Star offered a Marxist commentary on Britain, but it was read by almost nobody and carried no serious weight in mainstream institutions. It was certainly very hard to be in a significant imagined community with people on the other side of the world. This was one reason why, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Marxist revolutionaries were constantly frustrated that class identity proved much weaker than national, religious and familial identities. 
There was no real means by which to create an imagined community that united workers across the globe with stronger ties than the dominant national narratives. Today, all that has changed. National narratives are not the means for social unity, but have instead become battle zones. And it is very hard to be part of an imagined community when the nature of what is to be imagined is itself a primary source of division. But not only are the narratives of nations being contested, we are facing challenges from other narratives and other ways of being imagined communities. A moment's reflection indicates this. The language of community is now routinely applied to categories that have little or nothing to do with nation or religion or family. There is the black community, the LGBTQ plus community, the Asian community, the disabled community, even the BDSM community. The use of the word community for these various groups indicates both the collapse of traditional notions of belonging and the rise of a vast and growing number of alternative ways of human beings imagining their relationship to those around them. When identity is grounded in psychology, and when the internet allows for the indulgence of any and all means of thinking about that identity, the concept of community lacks any real constancy or solidity. People can now pick and choose their communities, and that means that they can pick and choose their identities. One intriguing and instructive example is that provided by the emergence of the Islamic State, or ISIS. At numerous points during the years when it dominated the headlines in the West, I frequently heard some version of the following phrase with regard to young, affluent Westerners who chose to identify with its cause. And the phrase was this, he pledged allegiance to ISIS online. There are many interesting aspects to such a statement. What does it mean to pledge allegiance online? How has the online world come to hold such a grip on imaginations that such an act makes sense to some individuals? These questions rest upon the most obvious fact that the statement reveals. The various individuals who did this clearly imagined that the ISIS community, even when exclusively mediated to them via its online presence on websites and blogs, was a more powerful source of belonging and identity than their families or the nations to which their passports indicated they really belonged. Only in a world where the old forms of belonging have been dramatically weakened and new forms of community have gained imaginative traction can pledging allegiance online to ISIS come to make any sense at all. The role of media and information technology in this has an importance that can scarcely be exaggerated. Geography is far less significant now than under the old imagined community of the nation-state. As Anderson's notion of imagined community makes clear, geography was not itself the central factor, even there because nations presuppose a sense of common identity that was not built on personal proximity or acquaintance. Given the fact that nations have borders, it was necessary that, for example, Americans in Texas live closer to Mexico than to Maine and yet still feel greater affinity for and identity with the inhabitants of Portland than those of Guadalajara. I grew up 40 miles from Wales and hundreds of miles from Newcastle. But like the natives of Newcastle, I consider myself English and not Welsh. 
Yet geography was still somewhat significant as locating key institutions, defining national territory, and providing a physical context for the national narrative. None of that applies in the age of the internet. Indeed, time and space are both transformed by the internet. The web can provide an immediacy of both, which was unknown to earlier generations because it was simply impossible. As it does so, it then enables or even encourages people to reimagine their communities to which they belong. As the world protests, as the world protests of the summer of 2020 indicate, a police action in the United States can seem more real and immediate to people around the world than events in a neighboring town. When British people were marching to protest the death of George Floyd, I was struck by the lack of similar protests in Britain concerning the ongoing struggle for human rights in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a much closer historical connection to the British national narrative than does Minneapolis. And while it may be further away, in the age of jet air travel, that is hardly a significant factor, a matter of just a few hours difference. Even so, events in the Midwestern American city seem far more immediate and real to many British people, far more relevant to the emerging imagined community of anti-racists and social justice activists than events in a place that was a British colony until as recently as 1997. The national narrative has disappeared, and a new narrative, that of social justice and anti-racism, has emerged to take its place. Furthermore, it is not simply the immediacy of the internet, but also the sheer volume and variety of information it offers that has transformed how we think about the world. The three TV channels of my youth have been replaced with hundreds of the same. Websites offer a seemingly infinite amount of information readily available at the click of a mouse. The ability for a single narrative or a small handful of narratives to dominate the airwaves is long past. In this sense, we might argue that there is one unifying narrative that lies behind the diversity of competing narratives on offer. It is that of the power of the individual to choose his or her community and therefore his or her identity. No longer are we presented with powerful fixed narratives, such as those of nation, family, or even bodily sex. Now we are free to choose the narrative to which we belong, to which we wish to belong, the imagined community that will provide us with our identity and purpose, we can focus on those narratives that make us feel good and that confirm our chosen view of the world and ignore those that present challenges to this. If the Reformation made religion a choice and represented a key move in placing the individual at the centre of things, the internet has extrapolated that to vast swathes of life. We can now choose our narratives and our communities more easily than previous generations could choose clothes and shoes. Let's now combine these first two points, recognition and narrative. When we connect the two parts of this lecture, the issue of recognition and the emergence of new imagined communities, the current conflicts that are causing such tensions within Western democracies start to make a sort of sense. Our societies are formally organised along the lines of the old community of the nation-state. 
We have institutions and calendars that reflect the imagined community of the nation. We still grant one vote to each person in California and one to each person in Arkansas on the grounds that we share a common cause, that of the USA as a nation. Yet so many members of the society made up of American citizens now find that the narratives which most strongly shape their identities are not those of the nation-state, but rather those of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, etc., they can chat to friends across the globe online. They can see political events unfolding as they happen in far-off countries and feel an empathy for the people they immediately affect. They can feel an affinity for those who share the same skin colour or sexual orientation in other countries, an affinity they may not feel for the neighbour living next door with whom they do not share such things. That is a situation in which conflict is bound to occur. Indeed, it explains why the social justice narrative despises our established institutions. They see them as systemically racist because they are constructed around a different understanding of identity. And it also explains why time, should we celebrate Columbus Day or Juneteenth, and space, which names are appropriate for buildings, whose statues should be allowed to stand where, are both arenas of this conflict. The conquest of time and space by the new narratives is critical to them gaining hold of the widespread popular imagination. In the past, civil society was possible because whatever the differences that existed between citizens, there was a deeper narrative, a deeper sense of identity and community that all shared and that served to relativise such. Therefore, when an election was won by one party, adherents of the other party respected the results because something deeper than party politics, the nation itself, was strong enough to provide a sense of underlying unity. As the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and that of Joseph Biden in 2020 have demonstrated, this is no longer the case. Modern American society is fragmenting because the imagined communities to which people choose to belong lack any shared narrative. Therefore, the terms of recognition that one group wishes to see American society adopt are often antithetical to those of others. And this leads to further conflict, because the very existence of alternative narratives is a threat to any given community's identity. The importance of this is clear. When we look at the challenges that the rise of the LGBTQ plus movement poses to traditional freedoms, such as those of speech and religion, such things were once considered basic essentials to a free society. Now they are coming to be seen not merely as unimportant social luxuries, but as antithetical to a truly just and free society, because they belong to another narrative and they give space for other narratives that threat, threaten the chosen identities of strong and powerful communities today. Conclusion. Plastic people, liquid world. All of the above points to the fact that we now live at a time in which the very issue of identity is unstable, volatile, highly contentious, and even unprecedented. Now, it is not unusual for commentators on contemporary events, whether professional critics or amateur pundits, to make hyperbolic claims about crises and living in unprecedented times. That is usually the moment at which the trained but annoying historian steps forward with a condescending smile and declares that, no, actually, there is a precedent. 
maybe 14th century Florence or 16th century Spain or Germany between the world wars, and that yes, we have seen all this before. And there is often much truth to such interventions. As we all have a tendency to think of our own era and our own problems as unprecedented and uniquely challenging, even though they often are not. We need to be reminded that we are not unique. I would argue, however, that the coincidence of two things make our current moment in time a singularly challenging and potentially sinister one. These two things are the plastic conception of human identity to which expressive individualism, the modern self, tilts and the liquefaction of the world around us with regard to the traditional frameworks, national, religious, familial, geographical, even physiological, by which human beings have previously defined themselves. That places us in a situation without obvious historical parallel. In the past, at least, the past of the few hundred years in the West, there has been sufficient cultural and institutional continuity over time to offer some stable framework for each person to find their identity in something bigger than themselves, outside of themselves, that offered stability. Again, to repeat the mantra, nation, church and family were perhaps the three most obvious. But even as these became increasingly tenuous in the 20th century, our bodies still offered some minimal level of continuity and stability. The person born with a male body did not have to decide his gender. It was a given over which he had no authority. The mother who gave birth to a daughter did not wake up 20 years later to find that her daughter no longer existed but was now a son. Today, the self, the modern self, is almost entirely plastic and the external world, right down to our bodies, is liquid something which offers no firm ground upon which to build an identity. That no doubt helps to explain, for example, the catastrophic levels of depression and anxiety in the West, which, on the whole, enjoys greater material prosperity and security than has been typical throughout human history. Yes, we are wealthier and healthier than our ancestors in the 16th and even the mid-20th centuries. But we do not know who we are anymore. As terrifying as that is to contemplate, it seems undeniable. Jean-Paul Sartre's comment that man is condemned to be free seems to capture something of our moment in time, for freedom without belonging is a grim burden to bear. And this helps to explain, I think, the power of newly emerging identities, such as those offered by the LGBTQ plus movement. In a world where old identities are implausible, and where people still wish to belong, the most powerful narratives and the strongest communities can offer a sense of belonging and security that all human beings crave. The dominant narratives pushed by the cultural elites press us to think of human selfhood, not simply in terms of expressive individualism now, but specifically in terms of sexual identity. They encourage us to see sexual fulfilment as a core component of a happy and fulfilled life. They shape our sentiments to see victimhood and marginalization not simply as evils to be overcome, but also as granting the victimized and the marginal a moral status that makes their various causes something that it is nearly impossible to oppose. Human selves exist in dialogue with the terms of recognition set by the wider world. When that world is liquid, those terms are set by the loudest voices and the most dominant narratives.
And those are no longer those of nation, church, and family, but those of sexual and racial identity. Thank you, Carl, for your lecture um, on a very stimulating topic. We have some great questions coming in. So those of you who are, are watching, please continue to send in your questions to digital at acton.org, and we'll get to as many of them as possible, um, or on the Facebook live stream. Uh, I would like to start off with the first question. Uh, in your book, you lean heavily on the thought of Charles Taylor, uh, Philip Reef, but I, but I was also struck at how similar those themes are uh, to people like Alexis de Tocqueville on his individualism, uh, Robert Nisbet and Robert Bella, uh, community, expressive individualism. Even C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, you know, deals with similar themes. And you, you do a great job of tracing the thread, especially to the modern sexual identity questions that, you, that you've talked about at length. But I'm interested to hear a little bit more, too, about what are some other areas in modern culture that you see these themes emerging into as well? Yeah, good question. I would say uh, most obviously for me, I guess, as an educator, I see them emerging in, in education. I've, I've used this anecdote a few times over the last few months, but I remember when I was at school being rebuked on my way home from school. I just went to a state school, what you'd call a public school, uh, being rebuked on my way home from school for having my shirt untucked. I, my school was a fairly traditional uh, school. It was all boys and we had a uniform and the uh, vice principal pulled over and rebuked me for having my shirt untucked because, quote, I was bringing the name of the school into public disrepute, end quote. Hard to imagine that happening today. Uh, if a teacher did that, he'd probably get sued. Uh, why? Well, because education is now not so much about formation. It's not so much about, if you like, having your individuality uh, subsumed under some greater re institutional reality, but about providing you with a platform upon which you can perform. So I would say education would be one obvious way in which this plays out. I think the church is very you know, complicit is always a rather negative way of, of, of putting it. But I think the church Certainly, the Protestant church has been involved in, in the kind of things that I talk about in the book uh, at, at a relatively harmless level. The kind of worship we have is often predicated upon my feelings and me being able to express my feelings uh, in, in worship. I've, I've heard it said by people, well, I, I go to that church and the preaching's okay, but the worship is excellent. And that's an interesting distinction between the preaching and the worship, which would not have applied in the Reformation. The preaching was part of worship. What people mean is during the time of singing, I'm able to uh, express myself. But on a sinister level, I think the church has been complicit in, in say, no-fault divorce. If, as I argue in the book, no-fault divorce is, is really a function of an expressive individualist culture and redefines marriage as something that is there in order to make me feel happy rather than reflect the, uh, and establish a, a, a relationship of dependence, mutual dependence between myself and, and my spouse. Well, the church has by and large gone along with no-fault divorce. It took no stand really against it in the 1970s when it became commonplace. So I would say those are three areas. Uh, I could add politics to that. The politicians, the number of politicians now who, who use profanity, 
in their public speeches, sending this image that they're an authentic person in order to make themselves acceptable to people. That too is a is a function of the the expressive individualist culture in which we find ourselves. So it's all pervasive, really. And those would just be a, a few examples I, I, I pull out of the air at this point. Sure. Well, good. We we have some great questions coming in um, from the audience, so I'd like to get to as many of the live questions as possible. Um, this is coming from Steve uh, Stephen H. In your conclusion, you cite Reef, who asserts that Hitler really won the West. Can you expand on this? Yeah, that, and that's one of Reef's most provocative statements, and only the descendants of a Holocaust survivor could sort of make that statement and get away with it, I think. Uh, I can quote Reef on that. I would never say it for myself. What Reef is pointing to there, it's part of his general argument that the, the problems we face in the West now come from the loss of... Uh, the loss of a sense of all human beings made in the image of God. Reef is an interesting character on that front because he's a, as far as I can make out, he's a secular Jew. I don't think he believed in God himself, he, but he thought God was a good idea for helping to maintain a, a civilized a society. He's a sort of quasi-odd Freudian on that point. But the point he's making with the Hitler comment is, what did Hitler do? Well, the Holocaust was predicated on the dehumanizing of a section of society denying that the Jews really possessed humanity in the way that the Aryan race did. And, and what Reef is getting at there is saying, you know, that's kind of where we are today. We, we've lost this sense that that which holds us together, our humanity, uh, has any kind of greater moral structure which we need to, to take account of in the way we deal with each other. And one could look at, at the way identity politics has has played out. Uh, if you look at uh, Supreme Court judgments such as Brown v. Board of Education, the famous uh, uh, lawsuit you know, crushing the separate but equal doctrine in education, the judgment in Brown uses the language of dignity. And it's using it very much against the background of a notion that all humans possess dignity because we're all human beings. And I would say that rests ultimately upon some kind of memory of or acknowledgement of the idea that we're all made in the image of God. Human beings have a moral significance simply by virtue of being human beings. Today, identity politics still uses the language of dignity, but often now it, it's, the, it's the dignity of the tribalized community that what gives us our dignity is the ability for our chosen communities to be whatever they want to be. And Reef would point to that and say, that's a result of a loss of, of realizing that that which binds us together is greater than that which divides or distinguishes us. And that goes back to a loss of a sense of the, uh, the image of God in human beings. So that's, you know, the, the Hitler comment is Reef's very dramatic way of trying to make that point. And when I first read that passage, it was a kind of, how can he say that? You know, I don't want to live in Nazi Germany. I, I'm much happier living in 21st century America. But I think what he's getting at is the loss of a, a sort of a metaphysical notion of a real moral human nature that's grounded in the image of God. That's, that was what the Holocaust was predicated on. And that's what modern identity politics is, is predicated on. So it's, it's a powerful, tasteless, but rather significant statement on the part of Reef. 
Yeah, provoc- provocative indeed. Um, and this, uh, so, so this comes from Ed. Ed asks, given the immensity of competing ideologies, how can honest dialogue lead to any kind of unity when all types of variable identities compete to either win or destroy those opposed to them? Yeah, and that's, yeah. Not allowing for inflation, that's the $64,000 question, I think, for, for public life. How can we have a, a, a civil public life given the way things have fragmented? And on one level, I, I find Alistair McIntyre's arguments very compelling that because we've lost any agreed meta-narrative, we really have lost the ability to do anything other than, than kind of shout at each other across the barricades. So on, on one level, I want to say, I don't think we can. I, I, I think the era of, uh, of civil discourse uh, of that kind has, has probably gone, at least for the time being. I am hopeful, though, that it can be pursued at a local level. One of the ways, you know, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, Great title, great marketing title for a book. Unfortunate from a Protestant perspective because everybody thought he was arguing for monasticism. Uh, but I think one of the things that one of the ways to read Rod's book is is to see it as as reorienting us to think about the local. What are my chances at a national level of engaging in constructive discussion and debate about the big questions of the day? Pretty much zero. National politics is playing out at the moment. Uh, against a background of demonized caricatures and a zero-sum game. And the fact that things have come to focus on the Supreme Court sort of reflects and reinforces that, because court judgments, they're blunt instruments. Uh, When something goes through a parliamentary system or through uh, the House of Representatives, Senate, it has to be negotiated. It doesn't have to be negotiated when it comes through the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sort of emblematic of the zero-sum game in which we're engaged in now in, in national public debates. But I'm convinced that we can have these civil conversations at a local level. Mm-hmm. When I'm sitting across the table from a real human being, looking into their eyes, engaging with them as somebody that that I instinctively feel a oneness with precisely because we are both obviously human. That's where I think these discussions can take place. And that, of course, requires that these discussions be conceptualized much more broadly than arguments. They have to be conceptualized as taking place within the context of established relationships. I have an established relationship with my neighbor which means I can discuss things with him. I can have debates and arguments and discussions with him precisely because we know and respect each other as human beings. So my answer to that question is, nationally, I don't have an answer to that. I'm inclined to be very pessimistic. But I do believe, I really do believe, that embodied interaction at a local level offers offers hope because cultures... Uh, Parche Samuel Huntingdon, Parche the cultural appropriation people, cultures at grassroots level are always negotiated. They're always permeable. There's always uh, uh, compromises going on when people from different cultures meet each other. I'm a British person living in America. Uh, My identity here is kind of negotiated between my Britishness and my Americanness. Uh, And I think that goes to a basic human truth that when we actually physically rub shoulders with each other 
more constructive things can happen. So I'm hopeful that the answer to that question lies in people refocusing on their local communities where they can make a difference rather than spending all their time on Twitter and worrying about the national situation where the difference they can make is really pretty minimal, if at all. And you really do see an evolution of, or, or a resurgence of books on localism or even hospitality. How to, Yvonne uh, uh, Illich, you know, tools for conviviality, how to have a yeah. conversation around a table. And yeah, I, there, there really is a resurgence in that theme. And I, I think we do need that. And it's one of the things I love doing at college. I have students around for hospitality. I don't care if they agree with me or not. I don't care if they're part of my camp. Come on over. Yeah. Sit at my deck. Let's have a conversation. And I'm struck at how many parents at graduation come up and say, thank you for having my, my son, my daughter around your house. Uh, it meant so much. It had a formative impact upon them. Yeah. And I think, yeah, hospitality is absolutely critical in the way we move forward at this point. It's very true. Uh, th this question is adjacent to the one I, I just asked. It comes from uh, Richard. Some assume that only uneducated fools are susceptible to grasping shallow and dangerous identities. But how does this process affect intellectuals in our modern world? Yeah, I, I think the historical evidence points distinctly in the other direction, actually. Uh, and... Um, I think of the book, The Opium of the Intellectuals, mm -hmm. uh, pointing to how a generation of, uh, of French intellectuals were, were grasped by Marxism. Uh, I, I think that intellectuals can be, they can be the most dangerous of all, partly because they tend to live in the realm of abstractions. And, and I think, yes, people think that, generally speaking, we only think that fools and idiots grasp the dangerous ideas with which we ourselves happen not to agree. Uh, uh, but I think the evidence suggests that intellectuals could be the most dangerous people with these ideas. And that's, I think, in large part because they do tend to operate in the realm of abstractions rather than the realm of real, concrete human uh, relationships. So I would say, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, one of my favorite historians is Eric Hobsbawm, Marxist historian. He's a great writer. Uh, and yet Hobsbawm was able to justify the, the Stalinist purges. It's, it's hard to get your head around how such a gracious and intelligent man bought into such a, a vile ideology in many ways. So I would say, no, let's let's avoid the condescending attitude of the, the sort of the basket of deplorables, whether we consider the deplorables to be up from the left or the right. We need to avoid that. And we need to realize that actually intellectuals are often the problem. And they're often the problem because they live in the realm of abstractions. If, if what people watching have not seen the Hitchcock movie Rope, it's a great movie. And to give you the plot, it's uh, it's about a professor having dinner with two students who just before the film, the camera starts rolling, murder somebody they consider an inferior, put him in a box, and then they have the professor around to have dinner. Jimmy Stewart's the professor. Have dinner, eating for, off over this box if it's a table. And the discussion slowly brings James Stewart to realize, one, what they've done, they've murdered somebody, and two, they've done it because of stuff that he taught them as abstract ideas in his class. Right. That's a very powerful movie, and I would say, no, intellectuals are the problem because intellectuals tend to think in abstractions, and we need to think in terms of concrete human relationships. 
That, that's good. I've, I've heard it said that it takes about 30 years for the intellectual ideas to trickle down into the public. And it, you, I think we are really seeing uh, 60s and 70s onward. Some of those things make it into the public, uh, the yeah. public realm, popular realm. And th- this next question is, is somewhat more popular or pastoral. Uh, this, the, uh, Derek asks this question. My family was formed when my wife and I covenanted before God to live and consist within his rules for marriage. Of my children, one has decided to identify with LGBTQ narrative, but he doesn't think that that should affect his relationship with his, with his family. Should it, and to what degree? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and the questions when they come in a very personal form are always hard to, to answer, and particularly hard in these kind of pastoral situations. So when I taught at seminary, students were always asking, you know, what do you do in this pastoral situation? And, and the answer, it sounds like a cop-out, but the, the answer was I would give was always be preceded by a preamble saying, well, every situation's unique, mm-hmm. and, and you'd have to take the whole situation into account. But I would certainly say, I, I certainly don't think it should break the the, the bond between parents and child. Uh, it's un, you know Romans one tells us it's, it, it's unnatural when people give up their their affections for their children. Uh, obviously, it, it it creates complications and it creates difficulties for that relationship. But children are a gift for the Lord. I think one should pray every day for one's children, regardless of the state in which they find themselves. I think if you, uh, you know, you sort of repudiate your child because they've come out as as LGBT, then you are pushing them into the arms of those that you don't really want them talking to. Certainly, as a sort of monopoly. Um, so, to the you know, it's the question: Does it change the relationship? Of course, it's going to change the relationship to some extent. It's going to put great strain on the relationship. Should it mean that the relationship is terminated? I would say absolutely not. As a parent, we always have responsibilities towards our children. Uh, we should be grateful for them but as gifts from God. We should pray for them, and we should uh, lovingly engage with them. All children make decisions with which their parents disagree. Some are more catastrophic and and life changing than others. But I think it it it's part of being a parent to to be I won't say supportive in the sense of affirming the person in their choices, but supportive in the sense of being that person they can always turn to when everybody else has abandoned them. So uh, I would. I would urge Derek in this situation, you know, continue to pray and to love your children as difficult as it is. Uh, don't don't repudiate them on that level. It's it's one issue, but it is only one issue. Uh, and try to be as as good, as strong, and and uh, uh, loving a parent as you can in what must be very very difficult circumstances. That's good. Um, we have. Several variations on this this question. This comes from Donald. Uh, how are we as Christians to respond to this new paradigm of identity and community while remaining faithful to the truth of the scriptures? Again, good question to which there is no easy answer. Um, I think there are a couple of principles one could one could pull out there. I think first and foremost, the community of the church is is important. If the thrust of my book is correct, that identity, the strongest identity is forged by the strongest community to which you belong, then the church at a local level has to be a strong community. Secondly, I think we need to to think about how sometimes 
we ourselves can adopt the paradigms of the world around us without even knowing about it. I was talking this morning to a group of teachers and I said, I don't like the term heterosexual. I don't like the term straight Christian because that's conceding sexual identity. Even though I want to affirm that to which that term is referring, that already concedes a key point in the identity argument. So I think we need to be very self-aware and very self-critical of how we operate. I think we need to accept that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. That if you are a Christian and you stand for the faith, you are going to suffer at some level for it. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to love you for doing these things. But suffering shouldn't cause us to despair. The great thing about hope, Christian hope, is that we know that even as we suffer, the Lord will use it for our salvation and for our greater glory, for his greater glory, for our glorification at the end of time. So I think understanding that suffering will come, and, and it's not to be enjoyed. I don't think we should go out and look for it. But we should realize that when it comes as a result of us being faithful, the Lord will use it for his, his purposes. So, you know, that may look different in different circumstances. Being a faithful Christian may look different in Western Pennsylvania to what it looks like in San Francisco. But I think those basic principles need to be, need to be held in mind. Well, we have time for one more question. And uh, this one deals with somewhat of the technology comments you made in your lecture uh, is there a particular aspect of technology that you have in mind that is uh, undermining these types of traditional understandings? Yes, I think more than anything else, the kind of social media stuff that goes on the Internet is, is transforming us. It's transforming how we think about arguments and how we think about engagement. And I think I've chatted to students uh, who've said to me, you know, a lot of uh, youth social media is now pitching itself as an alternative authority structure to the family and to parents. So I think social media, above all, I mean, all of technology can have this impact, but I think social media, above all things, is that which is serving to, to destroy or to tear down traditional structures of authority. Well, Dr. Truman, thank you for joining us for the Action, uh, Act and Lecture Series. And uh, those of you who are listening, he does expand uh, off this lecture on his, in his brand new book. Um, it is a bestseller, so please go out and purchase a copy if you're interested in uh, the expansion of these ideas. And those of you, please join us. Uh, usually we have a monthly act, uh, act and lecture series, but next month we, have, uh, we invite all of you to join us for our Acton University, our annual flagship conference. You can register at university.acton.org for an amazing two-day experience where we explore themes connecting good intentions to sound economics. Again, thank you, Dr. Truman, and thank you those of you who tuned in. Have a good day. Thanks for having me.